Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to any visitors amongst us, and it's good to uh, have you with us, as well as our regular congregation and fellowship sharing with us uh, this morning. Thank you. Uh, And we're thinking about resurrection this morning. And in the last, well, over the whole of this year, really, our senior pastor, Peter, has been bringing us through the Bible, giving us the big picture of God's plan of salvation. And it's been so exciting to go through all of that. Today we're coming to perhaps the greatest, but perhaps no, the greatest event in the Bible story, the resurrection of Jesus. Last week was also so important as well. That was vital because it was about the death of Jesus. So last Sunday was really almost like a Friday. You know, the Friday that was the Good Friday. Why is it a Good Friday when Jesus died? You see, it was Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday and Jesus is praying. Peter's asleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday and Pilate is struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robed him in scarlet. They crowned him with thorns. And they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary. His blood dripping. His body stumbling. His spirit is burdened. You see, it's Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning. Evil is grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Saviour's hands to the cross. The soldiers nail my Saviour's feet to the cross and they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. The Pharisees are celebrating. Their scheming has been achieved, but they don't know it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his Father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? It's Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday and the earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My King yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. And Satan's just a-laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard. A rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but it's Friday, Sunday's coming. Let's rise and sing another song. and shame. Bear no 
say on an Easter Sunday Jesus Christ is risen he is risen indeed Jesus Christ is risen he is risen indeed and yet is he see who has believed it text is a wee bit small perhaps on there up there but who has believed our report and there was Isaiah, way back in the Old Testament, not party to any of this, and yet he was prophesying about a coming Messiah. Couldn't really say much, perhaps, because he didn't know, but God was talking to him and revealing to him, and he couldn't understand it. Who has believed our message, he says? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Imagine Christ upon the cross, looking like that, and the men only came and mocked him, and despised him. Isaiah, as he prophesied this happening, who can believe this, he is saying? 
We don't understand. The Messiah's death was enough to take in for, for Isaiah, let alone a resurrection. People don't come back from the dead. Who has believed our report? And who do we believe? Who do we believe? You see, we, we come to that cross. It was Friday, as we've said, and now Sunday has come, but even that Sunday as it dawned wasn't straightforward for those disciples. At dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, and an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, his clothes as white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. What a, what a description that is, isn't it? Of this resurrection of Jesus Christ of those people who saw it. And we often say, don't we, that it was Mary and uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who were the first to see this happen, and yet those soldiers were there too. Those pagan soldiers, those Roman soldiers, who came as dead men, who were so shaken and, sh- and shocked by this event. And yet... As we go on in a few more verses, what happened to, to them? What did they do about it? Let's go on to the, to the next slide there, please. While the women were on their way to talk to others, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. wonder what they thought about it. These priests who had so coerced the Roman authorities to crucify Jesus, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, they called, and got the people to say the same. And now Jesus has risen. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Well, Who are we to believe then? You see these stories go around, but these soldiers they saw, and the disciples who saw. And then it gets quoted over the years. Let's move into another realm, into let's visit Greece. How many people like to visit Greece for a holiday perhaps, and uh, and take, them, take themselves away there, and maybe you've gone to Athens, and if the Areopagus is still there in some form or other, well, you can just imagine Paul, as he was wandering around Athens all those years ago, he came across a little idol which said to an unknown god, and he went up to the Areopagus and began speaking with people there. And as he spoke... People wanted to hear him. We are told that the Athenians, the Greeks, wanted to hear every new idea that was going round. And Paul was happy to oblige, particularly because he was so frustrated at seeing all the gods and all the idols that there were in Athens. And the Greek ones had Roman names, and the Roman ones had Greek names, and somehow they mixed the whole lot together and worshipped almost everything every God that came into play. And Paul talks about this unknown God and says, he's actually known to me. He's the one I know. He's the one who sent Jesus. And Jesus came into the world to die for you all. And he speaks to these Greeks and he says, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, like all these ones around us. In the past, 
God overlooked this ignorance, but now commands people everywhere to repent. For the day has, has been set when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Wow. What a marvellous statement that is. But look at the reaction that came as Paul said that in this pagan area, in this area where all the sorts of gods were worshipped, the God of love, the God of food, the God of the rivers, the God of water, the God of hate, the God of war, the God of peace, all of them, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. What a phrase, isn't it? it, Somehow, just a little bit gets to me, that little phrase. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. You can almost feel the sort of discontent and the thumbing of the nose, as it were, as they listened to Paul the Apostle speaking about this risen Christ who we worship, yes. But for them, well, it was just what does this mean? What does on earth does this mean? Who can believe this story? Did Jesus himself believe it? What, what thinking did Jesus have? And Jesus tells an interesting parable in Luke chapter 16. It's that story where he talks about a very rich man and a very poor man who goes by the name of Lazarus. The only parable where one of the characters actually has a name. won't go into the detail of that this morning. We'll get too diverted. But there is the rich man feasting sumptuously all his days, living it up, having a marvellous time while Lazarus is at his gate and receives just handouts, if anything. The days go by, the years go by, Lazarus dies, and he's welcomed into the the bosom of Abraham, which is a, a kind of metaphor for the heavenly experience. The rich man dies, and he, he goes to that other place, where he says, the fire burns his tongue and his lips and he's uncomfortable. And somehow it is possible to see between these two places. And the rich man, he looks up to heaven and he sees Lazarus enjoying the glories of eternity. Well, he is suffering. And the conversation begins in Jesus' story. And how this rich man pleads with Abraham in heaven to send Lazarus back to earth to warn his five brothers. Because this rich man realizes he cannot now go, he cannot now be rescued from this burning fire to go into an eternal paradise. It's not going to happen. Oh please, he insists, to Abraham, please let Lazarus return. Let him go to my five brothers, because if they see him, then surely they will repent. And Jesus makes Abraham respond in the story. No, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they've got the Bible. Let them listen to them. No, please, says Abraham, please let him return. If someone rises from the dead, surely he will believe. Abraham insists. They have Moses and the prophets. They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. It's an amazing parable, isn't it? that Jesus should be telling this story, it's almost against himself, isn't it? He, He knows that he will die. He knows that he will rise from the dead. That is his plan. And yet somehow he's telling this story against himself. Knowing that, 
even though he will rise from the dead, there will be those who just do not listen, either to the word of God or indeed to the one who rises from the dead. But through his life on earth, Jesus does believe and begins to instruct his disciples. And in Mark, Mark 10, we have all the twelve disciples, and in fact we have many making their way up to Jerusalem, Jesus leading the way, and he is marching ahead of them, and they are amazed and astonished. Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? It's only, it can only mean trouble with the authorities. Some are astonished, others are afraid. And he takes the twelve aside and he begins to tell them specifically what it means, what will happen to him. He's going to be betrayed, he says. The teachers of the law will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. He didn't stop there. Three days later, said Jesus, he will rise again. Interesting that he puts it all in the third person. He doesn't say, I will do this, I will do that, I will die, I will rise. He's talking about the Son of Man. Yes, he is the Son of Man. He's the Son of God and Son of Man. Two descriptions of Jesus in the Scriptures. But he's telling it as if it was someone else. But it's him. He will do this. He will suffer this. He will walk through this. And three days later, he will rise. Those disciples, they admit later that they couldn't understand it, that they didn't understand it. And even though it all happened right before their eyes, they did not understand until after it was all over that this is what Jesus meant. And Jesus hints at it to his hearers on several occasions. Jesus comes into the temple courts. You find the story at one place in John chapter 2. And he clears those temple courts of all those money dealers and traders because they've made the house of prayer a house of exchange and so on. And the authorities come to him and they say, by what authority are you doing all this? And Jesus replies that if they destroy the temple, he will rebuild it in three days. In three days, they say? This building has been in construction for 46 years. How can you destroy it and rebuild it in three days? And John, in his post-resurrection wisdom, many years later as he writes that gospel, puts in the comment, but Jesus was speaking of his body. Yes, here is Jesus being prophetic. A sign, if you like. One of those signs of John's Gospel, which you find many times through John's writings, about the way Jesus speaks, pointing to that future event of the cross and the resurrection. Three days. Even though it took 46 years to build that marvellous stone building. And this was remembered. And in Mark 14, we have the trial of Jesus. And there, while the, Jesus stands before the high priest and the chief priests and teachers of the law, and uh, they're all trying to look for some excuse to crucify and try Jesus. And they couldn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then someone stood up and gave this testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple in three days and will build another, not made by men. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. So it was brought back to Jesus. But even then, somehow, they just couldn't make it work. But that false trial still led 
to Jesus' death on the cross. And then, another time in Jesus' ministry, he is asked for a miraculous sign by the Pharisees. Would such a sign convince them that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, Jesus is sceptical himself. Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you, they say. Show us something. What, they've seen all these miracles already. They've seen lots of things. They've heard the teaching of Jesus. They've seen him work miracles. Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign. And Jesus' reply is, I'm not going to give you a sign except one. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. Wow, what on earth does that mean? (laughs) Why pick on Jonah? You know, that's that Old Testament prophet who, hearing the call of God to preach to Nineveh, that Gentile great nation of his era, ran away in a different direction got on board a boat and said, not likely, mate, I'm not going to Nineveh. And, uh, well, we know the story, don't we, how the storm came. He was thrown into the sea to save those ship, uh, the, sh- the, the ship's crew, and uh, how that great fish, not a whale, a great fish, swallowed him up. And for three days, Jonah was in the belly of that great fish before it spewed him out onto land and he did then go to Nineveh and preach and the people repented. But you see, Jesus is taking this as a sign, a symbol if you like. Here is Jonah and he was as good as dead for those three days. As far as those sailors on that boat were concerned, when they tossed Jonah overboard... Okay, the storm stopped, but to to them, Jonah was as good as dead. And I guess Jonah felt that a bit like that too. None of us wants to be swallowed by a great fish, do we? Not the most pleasant of experiences. But it's like Jonah was reborn, wasn't it? Thrown out onto that beach, and then made his way to Nineveh and preached God's word and My goodness, the Ninevites, who perhaps were fresh to the word of God, actually repented. They agreed that they were wrong and they found that the Lord, the living God, could be their God as well. But you see, Jonah is a symbol of what Jesus Christ was going to do. That Jesus himself would, as it were, be in the belly of the earth. For those three days, the Friday and the Saturday and the Sunday, before coming back, rising again. And it's even more specific because Jesus says in the great final judgment, it's the men of Nineveh who will actually stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. He's talking about his hearers there. His hearers, his Jewish people, they will be condemned because they are not believing, whereas the pagan Ninevites did actually believe the preaching of Jonah. It's amazing, isn't it? Here are these righteous people, here are these people who are followers of God, saying, no Jesus, we don't believe in you, we don't believe you are the Messiah, we don't believe you're going to die, we don't believe anything about this resurrection business, we can't see how that will happen, we don't believe. Those pagan Ninevites from a few generations ago, they believed just because a prophet came and spoke to them. The sign of the prophet Jonah. Hard words, aren't they? And dear friends, we need to listen to that today and get ourselves into the right frame of mind and somehow say to the Lord, Lord, come into my mind and please allow me to believe by your grace on the Son of God, this Jesus who died and rose again. 
Because you see, Jesus doesn't just say the words. He doesn't just give signs of someone that died and came back, as it were, a long time ago. He demonstrates what he means by action. And when we turn over to John's Gospel, there's a marvellous encounter in John chapter 11, where Jesus' friends at Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, are Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Nothing to do with the Lazarus we spoke about just now in the parable. This is a different Lazarus. This is a real live Lazarus. Well, real live Lazarus? Unfortunately, Lazarus died. And when Jesus hears of it, he stays where he is for two to three days before he actually makes his way to Bethany to meet Mary and Martha. And it's a story full of emotion and loving tension. We haven't got time this morning to go into all the details of that story. Read it yourself in the whole of John 11. It's a marvellous story, full of tension, as I say, and full of love and full of emotion and full of question. All those questions that we ask about why, God, do you allow this? Why, Jesus, weren't you there? He actually is. We just don't recognise it somehow because, well, we are overcome by the emotion of the moment. But Jesus questions Mary and Martha and he, and he says, do you believe in this resurrection? And they say, well, yes, we do believe that Lazarus will rise at the last day, but you know, that's future. And then Jesus makes this great claim. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That brings it right into the present moment. You see, it's one thing to believe that something might happen in the future, you know, at the end of life or centuries ahead. Jesus says, this is for now. This is for reality. Do you believe this? Perhaps the greatest I am saying that Jesus gave. And then it happened, didn't it? Jesus is crucified. All that horror of the false trial, the flogging and the cruel death, buried in a borrowed tomb. Did people believe then in a resurrection? How emotionally wrecked all the disciples were after his death. And yet, he came to all of them as the resurrected Christ on that third day. Some marvellous stories at the end of the Gospels of each of them. For example, we find ourselves in Luke, in Luke 24, walking along a road from Jerusalem down to Emmaus, where Kiliopas and an unnamed friend walk in sorrow. And Jesus walks with them, but they didn't recognise him. It's one of the peculiarities of the resurrection stories that very often people don't recognise the risen Jesus. And we don't have time to explore that fully this morning. Somehow they were just caused, I think, by the events of those moments not to recognise him until he gave a sign. He gave some symbol. And that was just how it happened there. But listen to that story. As Jesus joins them, he begins to explain to them. Because because they're questioning. Haven't you heard? Aren't you a stranger? Are you a stranger? Haven't you heard what's gone on in Jerusalem? Our Jesus, he was crucified and he's been dead and this is the third day and we... We just lost. We don't know. And this stranger, whom they still didn't recognize, began to say to them, Oh, 
Why are you so slow to believe what the prophets have said? And beginning at Moses and the prophets and all the scriptures, he began to explain to them that the Christ must suffer and rise again. You know, that's what we've been, we've been trying to do in this church over these six months or so. <laughs> well, if we could have just dipped into that conversation between Jesus and Cleopas and friend, what a marvellous occasion that would have been. Jesus in all the scriptures. You see, because Moses, that's the key word for the Old Testament and the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. The prophets, that's the key word for all the books like Isaiah, all the way through to Malachi. And the scriptures, okay, it's the big word for the whole Bible, but also it's that special bit that includes the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Solomon's Song and all those books. So it's the whole scripture. There is something of Christ in all the scriptures. All the way from Genesis to Malachi. He's prophesied. His life is prophesied. His death is prophesied. His resurrection is prophesied there. Everything points to it. What it would have been to have been in on that conversation. I wonder. We looked at Isaiah 53 as we opened this this morning, who has believed our report? Who to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Later, Isaiah talks about uh, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and will be satisfied. See, in in, in those verses, you see, Isaiah sees the Messiah being cut off, dying. No generations to succeed him. How awful that was to a Jew. How awful that is for many of us, perhaps. You know, if we are the last of the line of a particular generation... No one to follow our family line. And that's what it looked like for Jesus. Uh, But, you see, Jesus rises again. And he will see the light of life. He will be satisfied. Yes. Because his children are the children of God. It's you and I, if we know the Lord Jesus as our Saviour. We are that fresh generation of the people of God whom Jesus died and rose again for. So did Jesus talk about that? Perhaps he did. Perhaps he mentioned to Jonah as well as he gave that sign those months previously to the disbelieving Jews. Perhaps on this road to Emmaus, He spoke about Jonah and spoke more positively. Perhaps he spoke about Genesis as well, chapter 22, with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, or nearly so, until at the last minute the angel of the Lord calls and says, Abraham, there's a substitute. There's a substitute. And as the writer to the Hebrews puts it in his letter, So Abraham received, as it were, his son back from the dead. It's a picture of God allowing his son to be sacrificed and receiving him back from the dead because it actually and really and truly happened. It's a marvellous story, isn't it? You see, there's historical evidence. Each of the Gospels records the details of the resurrected Christ, his appearance to several people. And you can look at the historical evidence in each of the Gospels. And if you just turn to each Gospel, to Matthew, to Mark, to Luke and to John, look at the last chapter. In John's case, you need to make it two chapters. Trust trust John to make it a bit longer. You have all of the stories of the resurrection of Jesus. The puzzlement 
and then the awe and the wonder and the worship. And it's clear that something unique has occurred. It's not to be doubted. And even that most doubting of disciples, Thomas, who just couldn't get his hand ra- head round it and somehow couldn't even bear to even be in the same room at first, eventually comes and reaches out and touches that scarred but risen body of Jesus falls on his knees in worship and says, My Lord and my God. And where else do we go? You know, one of the most important passages in Scripture for both historic evidence and for theological significance is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that, I think is something which I might almost say is a little bit of homework for us because we haven't got time to expound it fully today. But at some point today, after perhaps Andy Murray has won Wimbledon or maybe tries to, (laughs) let's take a moment to read 1 Corinthians 15. Read all of it. Because it speaks about the resurrection of Christ. There's the historical evidence. Christ died for our sins, he says. He was buried and raised on the third day. He appeared to Peter and to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James That's the brother of Jesus and to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as well, he says Paul. When Paul wrote this, it was roughly AD 55. Jesus died in approximately AD 33 and was raised that time. So this is about 20, 22 years afterwards and Paul is writing about this vibrantly and wholly wholeheartedly and he's saying look if you want evidence look just go and ask these people 500 of them it's not recorded in the gospels I don't know why (laughs) must have been a huge occasion mustn't it but these 22 years afterwards you could go to almost any of them just a few had died but there were many around and you say, were you there? Yes, they would say. I was there. I saw the risen Christ. You see, it was public knowledge. Paul, at the end of his um, ministry, or near the end of it, comes up for trial two or three, well, three times. And before one of the rulers, or two of the rulers, Festus and Agrippa, He knows that these people are aware of all that's going on. It is said, Festus, you're acquainted with the way, which is what they called the Christian path in those days. And he's aware that King Agrippa was actually somehow descended from Jewish people. He's the fourth generation from the King Herod, who was around at the time of Jesus' birth. And he speaks to them in his trial of what's going on in his hope and how God has come into his life. And he, he says, I am convinced that none of this has escaped your notice since it was not done in a corner. No. See, this was something which was public knowledge. This resurrection of Jesus, they couldn't hide it. It was there for all to see and to understand historical evidence it's there the theological significance as well in 1 Corinthians 15 Paul says that it is of first importance first importance this is what our salvation is about Christ died and appears again. It's according to the scriptures. 
The whole of the Bible, God's revelation to mankind, explores it, prophesies it, records it, and fulfills it. This is God's complete salvation. It doesn't end in a darkened tomb on a Friday. Sunday comes, the stone is rolled away. Our sin is dealt with because Christ has conquered death. Satan was defeated. Death is defeated. The fear of death need hold us in terror no more. In Christ too, we will be made alive. And in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, such an important chapter. It says, you know, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, you know, we're we're wasting our time. We really are. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. All those songs we were singing about just now, all the, the readings and the prayers, wasting our time. We might just as well be out of here walking along the beach, going down and getting some food in the seafood festival, pleasing ourselves. That's what Paul suggests at the end of this particular passage in 1 Corinthians 15. What have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What a pessimistic view of life that is. And yet it's the only alternative to the fact that Christ rose from the dead for our salvation, that Jesus died and rose. It completes God's plan for the saving of mankind as a whole and for each one of us individually. And there's a forward look and a future hope. Christ's resurrection is significant for each one of us. It covers our past It completes our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. It covers our present experience. The risen Christ is with us. Time and time again in Paul's letters, he says, we are in Christ. Such an important phrase. We are in Christ. How can we be in someone who is dead? We can't. We are in Christ who is alive and forevermore. What a wonderful phrase that is. We are in Christ to know him, to rejoice in our experience of him. And we look forward to that promised second coming of Christ. When he comes, we shall be like him. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Isn't that marvellous? We have this hope of a new body. Just as well, isn't it? Some of us hobble around a bit as we get older. And I don't need to go into the details, do I? We all know what it's all about. Or at least, perhaps if you're younger, you might not be quite sure yet, but we're getting there. You'll get there. (laughs) We'll have a new body. Years ago, I heard a preacher say that Jesus died in his mid-30s at the peak of his earthly life. And the suggestion was that when we become like Christ in that resurrection body, it will be as if we are at the prime of life. We won't take into heaven and glory those aches and pains, those limps and blips. We'll have a resurrected body which is like Christ and it will be perfect. What a wonderful hope that is. And what about our personal experience? Have we met with the risen Christ? See, I wonder if we just believe that somehow Christianity has a good moral code, but we haven't yet met the risen Saviour. No, we can't meet him as the disciples did and those first generations did because he's ascended into heaven. But we can meet him like the Apostle Paul did because Paul didn't meet with Jesus in that earthly life as far as we know, but he met with Jesus on the Damascus Road in that vision that came to him as he was wanting to persecute and defy and deal with this church, this people of the way. And suddenly Jesus appears and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
And there, in a room, a few days later, there Saul becomes Paul and becomes the anointed apostle to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll be thinking about how all that happened and how the church has spread throughout the world. But Paul came to Christ there. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the crucial question. It requires our response. Even doubting Thomas had to put aside those doubts and almost admit to himself that he couldn't work it all out, but he saw Jesus and said, You are my Lord and my God. Have you been there? In your imagination, join Peter and John or Mary and the other women as they go to the tomb that Easter Sunday morning. See the stone rolled away and let your doubts roll away and let your faith, however small and weak it is, like a grain of mustard seed, let that begin to take fruit in your life. Look inside that tomb and see no dead body but the empty tomb and the grave clothes just laid folded neatly on one side. Look and believe that your sins are dealt with because Jesus died and he's risen again. Stay and worship. Come outside and tell the world, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. It was Friday. But Sunday's come. Amen. And a hallelujah, surely. Amen. Friday has come, but Sunday has come. I wonder if we know the Lord in this way. This morning, if you feel challenged by the resurrection of Jesus, take time to pray. Take time to read that 1 Corinthians 15 But if you want someone to pray with you this morning, the prayer team will be available as we sing our closing hymn this morning and I'll invite the worship group to come and join me here as we begin to sing in Christ alone. But this morning, don't go from this place with unresolved doubts or fears because Jesus has risen and has risen indeed. And in Christ alone we can rejoice.